The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Let's give attention to Mark chapter 6. We're looking at the first 30 verses, a little pretty good chunk. There's three stories that I'm going to tell there in this passage. The first one really has to do with rejection. The second will have to do with repentance. And the third has to do with revenge. And so they're all, I think, intertwined. And so that's why I'm putting them all together. But um, let's give attention to God's word here. This is Mark chapter 6, 1 to 30. He went away from there came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve, began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For Herodias' daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give, up, I'll give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king, And asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. 
And immediately the king set an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus, told him all that they had done, and taught. Here ends the reading of God's word. Well, you have to acknowledge that chapter 6, this feels completely different than, than Mark chapter 5. So if you've been with us through this journey through Mark, everything's going great in Mark 5, it seems like. <clears throat> I mean, everybody falls down. Before Jesus in Mark 5, all the major characters that come into his presence, they fall down before him. They, they see his, his greatness and his, his power, and the demoniac falls down before him, and the, the, once the bleeding woman is healed and <clears throat> it's made known, she falls down before him, and, and Jairus, in making his plea to come save my daughter, he falls down before Jesus, and so you're seeing the kingdom breaking in, and <clears throat> all these unclean spirits are cast out and sent to the pigs, and this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and she's unclean, but when she touches Jesus, she's healed and made clean, and then Jesus touches this 12-year-old girl who's dead, and she's raised from the dead. And we leave Mark 5 radically struck by what Jonathan Edwards talks about in his conversion, two things, his majesty and his meekness. And those are the two things that compelled Edwards to see the glory of Jesus. You know, you're seeing his might and his mercy, his power and his pity, his sovereignty and his sympathy, his majesty and his meekness. You see both. And so... You're, you're, you are seeing some tension in chapter 5. I mean, you remember Jesus was laughed at when these professional mourners are bawling their eyes out and they're being paid to mourn the death of this girl. And as soon as Jesus says, oh, she's not dead, she's sleeping, they, they instantly turn their, their weeping to laughter. And Jesus is also asked to leave the Gentile Aries, asked to leave the Decapolis. They don't want him in their town because he's not good for business. But overall, you get the impression of chapter 5 that the good guys are winning. The kingdom of God's breaking into this world. You can't wait to read chapter 6 because, man, three, four stories in a, in a row of incredible things. But then you get to chapter 6, and it's like somebody has slipped you a different sheet of music. It's full of low minor chords, and the lowest keys on the register are ominously being played as you're getting to this chapter what is happening here is a crash. It's a collision. It's two kingdoms, two different agendas come together, and there's this violent collision and, and contact that is clearly made right on the back of John's neck with a sword is where the collision is going to meet its biggest force, right? And so you have three stories in this text, and you could say, you know, in seminary they teach this big word called pericopes, there are three little sections, and the first is Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth, verses 1 to 6. And as I said, that's the rejection section. And then Jesus is going to send out the 12, that's verses 7 to 13, and that's the repentance is their theme and what they are preaching. And as they go out preaching this, we're intertwined with a Markin sandwich again from 14 to 30, and we'll call that section revenge. And so... As we consider those three themes, let's go back to scene one. Jesus comes to his hometown. He's coming home. 
So it's like, you know, when somebody comes back from war, what do you do for them, right? You think there's going to be, is there a parade? Is there any red carpet welcome? Do we have fanfare? What do we have? He comes back to Nazareth, and Nazareth is just this podunk town 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. It's a small, obscure village built on a rocky hillside, covers about 60 acres, fewer than 500 people live there. It's a place where everybody knows your name, and some people have probably babysat Jesus and wiped his nose as a kid, and they know all about Jesus, and they're not impressed. And so they ask these questions, though, in verse 2. They ask the big where question, then the what question, and the how question, right? In verse 2, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Right? You get the where, the what, the how, but verse 3 is going to answer the question. And the question is answered actually with cynicism. Is not this the carpenter? He's just, he's common labor. He's middle class. He's just a carpenter. And this is Bar Miriam. Bar Miriam, son of Mary. I mean, what a, it's such an insult that it probably doesn't, goes right over us. You never refer to somebody by Bar mother's name. It would have been Bar Joseph. But to insult him, we have a word for somebody who's been born out of wedlock. We have a cuss word, and I'm not going to use it, but that's what they're saying. We know who you are. We don't even know who your father is. We know who you claim. <clears throat> but this is the son of Mary. Don't even name him by his father. And they, we know all his brothers and his sisters. There's nothing special about him. They're expecting something great. And this is where we have this idea of familiarity breeds contempt. And they took offense at him. They're offended. This is the scandalon word, scandalizo, and it means to take offense, but it also means to stumble. And if you remember from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, that Jesus is the cornerstone, but the cornerstone was what? It's rejected by men, but becomes the cornerstone. It's the scandalon. Many stumble over the stone, and his own hometown is stumbling over the cornerstone. And there's two things for us to consider here as we just think through that. One is, it's very easy for us who've grown up in the church, we're the hometown crowd. And it may be for you that have grown up in the church, you're the covenant child, you've had your covenant baptism, you don't need to really learn anything this morning because you've heard it all before and it's all humdrum and boring and there's no longer any need to be captivated, enthralled in awe and wonder and astonishment. This is all familiar stuff. I've seen this movie way too many times. I've been there, done that. Can we get on with this? There might be something better to do on Sundays and I'm missing out. If that's how you're feeling this morning, then you're no different than the people of Nazareth. And you need to repent. Because Jesus is ordinary. That's part of the incredible glory is that he becomes one of us. He becomes a human being like us in every single way. He did have to blow his nose just like you and I did. And he's just like all the other kids. And, he, he's a carpenter. He's just normal. And they're expecting something so much more astonishing than that. And yet that is the astonishment. 
is that God would become man. And so wake up if you're bored. The other for us to consider is this. If Jesus is rejected in his hometown, no fanfare, no welcome, no, no great applause, no nothing special. Matter of fact, just the opposite, but rejection. If Jesus is rejected in his hometown and you are a follower of Jesus, this whole text is meant to be a look what it means to follow him, count the cost. So by the time you get to verse 30, you've had the greatest of the prophets have his head removed for you to know that sometimes it's really costly. And so if Jesus is rejected in his hometown, Should you be surprised when you're rejected first by your immediate family? By the very people that you know the best, who know you the best, they're going to be the first ones that are going to call foul and reject you. For you to be rejected by co-workers that you've worked with for years, and now you start reading your Bible or doing a Bible study or talking about the church or talking about things that you love, and you're changing affections, and they're not buying it because they know what you used to love. Or by your friends at school. You know, as you start to not run in the same direction that the rest of the crowd in the middle school and the high school are running. And you start to do things righteously. The ones who know you best will be the first to dismiss you and reject you. And they're going to say you're nothing special. You've got flaws, habits, vulnerabilities, weaknesses. And we're looking for something really special and you aren't it. Well, don't be surprised when it happens to you, because it happened to Jesus. And if it happened to Jesus, then certainly as his follower, it can happen to us. Now the next two scenes I want to combine together, because we talked about last week this kind of classic Mark and sandwich where Mark will weave one story into another, right? And so woven into the fabric of this story, you know, you've kind of got the peanut butter and the peanut butter and the jelly in the middle. Well, In the middle of this story, if you look at verse 7, we see Jesus is sending out the disciples two by two. And when you get to verse 30, we're told they returned to Jesus and told him all they've done and taught. So the story, so it's connected. So the the question is, okay, what happens between verse 7 and verse 30 in this sandwich? And we know that in this sandwich, that... The disciples are now called apostles for the first time. They go out, they're preaching repentance. They're given authority to cast out demons. They're anointing with oil those who are sick, and they're healing them. And news is beginning to travel. And there's some interesting tie-ins here where they're told, don't take stuff with you. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Wear sandals, not put on two tunics. Does that sound like any story in the Old Testament to you? Where you're to do something in haste and, and be ready in haste. It, it, it reminds you of the Exodus, right? And you're to, you know, unleavened bread and, and you need to bolt quickly. And when it's time to go, it's time to go because urgency is of the day. And that's so the idea is that God is on a mission. He's doing something new, He's doing something powerful. And this idea of like shaking the dust off your feet was what the Jews would do in a Gentile area, but now it's to say anybody who rejects the message is now unclean and to shake the dust off your feet. So there's been a little inversion here, but he's drawing significance to the Old Testament exodus experience that God is doing something new and powerful and his kingdom is breaking in and he, want, he sends them out two by two because it's going to be hard. 
And you don't want to be a lone wolf. You don't want to be a lone ranger out there doing this work. You need to go out together. But don't take a whole lot so that you're leaning on all of the comforts that you have. You're going to live lean and mean. And so they go out and they do this. And many demons are cast out. Many are sick or healed. He's given them authority. And they're preaching repentance. Verse 12. Right? We see their message is that people are to repent. Well, we get a case study in the sandwich. And we're told about King Herod. Because King Herod hears about Jesus and what Jesus has done. But we see something's going on with, with Herod. Herod has a haunted conscience. We could say he has an ulcer in his mind. It's gnawing at him. And he's convinced that John, who I have beheaded, has been raised. It's a weird thing to think, isn't it? You can't help but think of Shakespeare's most famous line in all of his writing, where Lady Macbeth is haunted in her conscience, and she can't sleep, after they have killed King Duncan, and she cries out, Out, damn spot, out, I say! And then a few lines later, she says, All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. She can't get rid of the stain. She can't get rid of the smell. And it haunts her like the telltale heart that though this person's dead and cut up in the floorboards, there's still a beating heart that's beating. And that's what's happening to Herod here. His conscience is eating at him like an ulcer in his mind. If only Herodias had a conscience. But Herod does, and he knows that he's done wrong. And Mark has woven in this story for us to see the clash, the crash, the conflict, the crash of wills. And what we're seeing here is righteousness and sin being confronted. Light penetrating darkness, hatred and love, lies and truth, kingdom of God, kingdom of man. And they're all clashing right here in one story because not everybody repents and as a result, not everybody lives. And so if we take a little history lesson here just for a moment, you almost would need a, a, a chart of how crazy the Herod's dynasty is because what you have is you have Herod the Great and Herod the Great, he ruled over Palestine, and he's a vassal king of this Roman Empire. And Herod, um, he's the one who's mentioned in the accounts of Jesus' birth, right? The wise men encounter Herod in Matthew 2. That's not the Herod here, okay? So we have Herod the Great, and he's ruling ahead of time, and he had ten wives. And upon his death, he divided his kingdom into four parts, and he gave them to four of his sons, each of whom became a tetrarch, ruler of a fourth, and, you know, there are over four pieces. And Herod Antipas it became the Tetrarch of Galilee, okay? So he's one of the sons of the, okay? So Herod the Great, just follow this and just take this in because it, you really need the chart. But you can go look it up online because it's much more crazy than I'm even going to tell you. But Herod the Great had ten wives, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great's fourth wife, Malthus. Now Herodias, okay, was actually the daughter of Aristobulus, which was another one of Herod's children. Okay, so Herodias comes from that line. And so <clears throat> one of the sons of Herod the Great, he had a bunch of his children murdered. 
and Aristobulus was one of them. So Herodias grew up without a father because Herod the Great had that dad killed. Okay? And so Aristobulus was Herod Antipas's half-brother. So Herodias is actually a granddaughter of Herod the Great through his second wife, Miriam, and hence a niece of Herod Antipas. So Herod Antipas marries not only his niece, but it's also Philip's half-brother of his wife. Okay, you follow? I mean, it is incestuous mess. Okay, that would be the point to get from that. Okay, and so John the Baptist is going to rebuke Herod Antipas for marrying Herodias, who's his niece, who's already the wife of his half-brother Philip. And according to Josephus, when Herod Antipas stayed with Philip and Herodias on his way to Rome, he fell in love with her and brazenly proposed marriage, even though she was married and he was married. So he, he divorced his wife, she divorces, she leaves her husband, marries him, and now enters John the Baptist, who's actually going to call a spade a spade. And he tells um, John that it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. You're thinking, how in the world could this be relevant to us? Well, I can just tell you, I mean, I have several of my friends that I keep up with from college, two in particular, and they're both dealing with another friend that I'm not near as close to, but my one friend has, uh, he's a believer. Um, he's been married three times, okay? He's been divorced three times. Well, one of his wives, he found like online, and she was from Ukraine, and that was one of his disasters. And he wants to now marry another woman from Ukraine. The problem is, she's 20 years old. He's my age. She doesn't really speak English. He's caught her. In, he has to pay a, a lot of money every month just to translate the messages to get to her. But something got garbled back to him, sent back to him. Basically, she's interacting with some other guy. So... He's not the, it's basically she's looking for a ticket out of Ukraine, even if he's 53 and he's his ticket, she's out of Ukraine, but there's no evidence whatsoever that she loves Jesus and that she's a Christian. And so my two friends, one being an Enneagram 8, one an Enneagram 9, so one is a, a peacemaker and he just wants to make the peace and he's just like, man, this is so hard. And so his take is a little different and he's writing him a long letter and they've talked about it. But my other friend is the Volpster, who's Italian Brooklyn man, and he, he's the eight man. He is a Enneagram challenger. So he's just like, dude, you, you got to repent. You can't marry this woman. This is wrong. This is sinful. And have, does your church know? And he says, no. He says, well, I'm going to talk to your pastor. And so he calls his pastor and tells him, this is what my friend is doing. Please counsel him otherwise, okay? So now my friend Volpe is, is being tortured because his, this guy is now caught saying that you're a control freak, you, in, you invade into people's lives too much, you, you need to leave me alone, you, you've slandered me and what you've said. And so now my friend is wondering, what have I done wrong? 
And my response to him, long before I preached this text, is I texted him back after we talked about it, and I said, you're eating yourself up. And I said, I'm sure John the Baptist was in prison wondering, how could I have been more tactfully, tactfully said that you have your, your brother's wife and you should repent? Like, you're thinking the problem is you, Mike, but the problem is not you. You're speaking truth, and the truth is, is not wanting to be heard. And so now you're being shunned, shut out, and now being slandered. And so this is the world that we live in. And so what we're trying to, what Mark is trying to get us to see is that when the kingdoms collide, it's a difficult world that we live in. And really, you could do a whole expose here. I mean, we're, we're doing this book on sin in Sunday school, and, the, and this morning's lesson was like the corruption of sin and how it pervades and, and has so many layers to it. Well, how many of the seven deadly sins can you count here? I mean, you just look at this passage and you think, okay, what are the seven deadly sins? I mean, do we have lust? Do we have adultery? It starts with lust and it's incestuous lust. And then you have even lust again over his grandniece that, that, that the power player in the passage, I mean, the big power player is Herodias. She's, everybody's a pawn and she's just staging her time and her moment because she is driven by what? The seven deadly sin of wrath. And she is going to get her revenge. So she's driven by revenge. She's motivated to bring it all about. And she's waiting for her moment because she knows that Herod is full of pride, his deadly sin, and his exalted, exaggerated speech. I'll give you up to half my kingdom in his slothful, drunken estate after they have gluttonously eaten like you know, kings at this stag party of which no men were invited to. And now in their great moment of pride... He says, after she's tickled them with her dance, and, and this dance is no like Irish river dance, okay? <laughs> this is not a, a square dance. This is a lewd dance that her mother has set her up for. Certainly, dress like this, dance like this, go and do your thing and impress these men in such a way that she's, she is using her daughter and her daughter is an all-too-willing disciple of her mother. And so he, in his exaggerated speech, says, I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. He really doesn't have anything because his kingdom's been taken from him, but that's a whole other story. But, so he's full of himself, and she doesn't know what to say, so she goes out to talk to her mother. And her mother's been plotting this along for a long time. And she has her moment, and it says, when opportunity came. Just think about this word for a minute, opportunity. You think about the heart of man. When the Bible uses the word opportunity, you should almost be scared because 80% or 90% are bad, right? Don't let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And when they gave him money, to Judas, he was looking for an opportunity to betray him. This word opportunity is just used a bunch of times for there are certain key moments in your life. And sin seizing the opportunity twice, it says seizing the opportunity in, in Romans 7 will kill you. Sin seizing the opportunity. There's this tunnel of time there's going to be certain moments in your life where you have to make a decision. Am I in or am I out? 
Am I fleeing or am I sinning? And there's these moments. And for her, her moment, she's already been gnawing on this for a long time. She's had this grudge. And it started with just a little bitterness, a lot of bitterness. And now she's starting to feed that bitterness and she's starting to nurse it and starting to live on it. And as she's living on that bitterness, she wants him dead. But, but John, John has told this message, but then you have Herod, and he's a really interesting character, isn't he? Because on the one hand, it says he fears John, he knows that he's a good and righteous man, and he actually likes to hear him speak. But I've got to just shut him up for the sake of my wife, get him out of the public eye, protect John by putting him in prison because my wife wants to kill him, but I want to bring him up from time to time and hear him because I'm just perplexed. He's perplexed because what is his problem? He loves John. He loves the message, but he loves one thing more. It's just one thing. It's the one thing that he's in hell for because he chose his adultery. He chose his lust, and he could not let his lust go. And so he could listen all he wanted, but he couldn't follow. He couldn't obey. And when the opportunity came, now we see he's a coward. He's a people pleaser. He fears man, and he can't, he can't say no because I've, I've done, given my word, and, and now she has caught me. She has outfoxed the fox. As Jesus calls Herod a fox, well, his wife was the fox, and she has outfoxed him. She's the power player. She's the Jezebel, and she catches him, and now he's caught. And so what does he do? He grants the request of the daughter, and the daughter and this willing disciple that she is, she's twice the daughter of hell as her mother. She's going to come back and add some dark humor to it, that the very platters that served all this food would be a nice platter for John the Baptist's head. She came up with that on her own, and she came up with the immediately and at once. She threw in her own twist to make it happen. And so can you imagine this dinner party and then you're going home and now you're connecting again with your wife and you say, how'd the party go? How'd, how'd things go? It was a birthday party. It must have been a lot of fun, lots of celebration. How was it? You're not going to believe this. I mean, can you imagine having to retell that story that somebody's head ended up on a plate? What's going on? The heart of man in the collision is that man will do anything to hide sin. And so David, when he's caught in sin, what does he plan for Uriah? He plans to kill him. And today we're, we're grieving in, in our country that has killed 64 million babies. Think, how is this relevant to the world we live in? Well, we live in a world right now that 60% of the culture is really mad at you. It's you Christians because you have taken the right away from a woman's body. It's my body and my choice. And you Christians are the bad people because you don't love me. How do we get around that? Because the reality is this. Women don't set out in their, in their agenda. It's not in their goals. It's not in their five-year plan. No woman sets out to have an abortion. And yet we find ourselves in a very tricky spot where we're hearing this fight against women and it's 
my body and my choice. And I would just say, how do you engage that in your workplace, your neighbors, your family? And that, that issue comes up. It's a sore subject, is it not? And the media wants to cover it in a very negative light. They'll show the angry, always show the angry males yelling or something, you know. Abortion is murder or something. I would say this. When a, when a woman says it's my body and my choice, I would first try to argue, well, let me ask you a question. If you're on a bridge and you're wanting to take your life, and I came to you and said, well, it's your body, it's your choice, do what you want because I would not want to interfere because it's your body and your choice, would that be loving you if I just let you jump off the bridge or let you take all the pills and take your life? Like, wouldn't you think, wouldn't you want to rescue me and save me? And they say, well, they wouldn't like that. And they say, well, that, that's different. Well, how's it different? Well, here's the other one. If you said it's my body, my choice, how about if I said this? It's my house, and it's my three-month-old. And if I want to get rid of my three-month-old in my house, it's my house, it's my choice. Who are you to tell me if I want to get rid of my three-month-old, that what's wrong with that? And hopefully they would say, well, that's a, that's, you can't do that. Well, why can't you do that? And the answer is because it's a baby. And the Bible uses the word baby, whether it's in the womb or out of the room, for a reason. Because it's the truth. So when Elizabeth, who has John the Baptist in her womb, sees Mary for the first time, what does she say? When I saw you and heard you, the baby leaped in my womb. The baby. The baby. Because it's a baby before or after. Whether it's three-month-old in the womb or out of the womb, in the house or in the womb, that's what we're trying to argue is that we're actually trying to show you love, that we care about the life. The life is what we're concerned about. And so, yes, sometimes when we take this message, it's not going to fall on warm ears that are going to love what we are trying to say. But we do have an an opportunity and a responsibility to stand for human life. And these are difficult times in a culture of death. And so as John the Baptist is taken out and the disciples come back to Jesus and then he's going to tell them to come away, like they've they got to process what's happened. They have to grieve. I want you to think in the bigger picture, how does this story point to a bigger story? As we come to the Lord's table this morning and answer the question, how was John the Baptist's death different than Jesus' death? Because there's so many similarities right here. Think about it. A proclaimer, this is, this is uh, Kenneth Bailey's observation. He makes like 12 connections with the death of John, with the death of Jesus. And here they are. In both instances, you have a proclaimer of the gospel who made powerful enemies because of his proclamation. In both encounters, Jesus and John the Baptist, a procl the proclaimer was justly imprisoned. In both encounters, a ruler admired the prisoner, but was too weak to act on his scruples. The ruler acted to protect his own interest and ignored the demands of justice. Intrigue and power, and power politics were involved in both. The wife of the ruler was involved in both. The, keeper of, the keeping of Jewish law was an issue in both. In both, an innocent man is brutal, brutally murdered and justice is violated. In both accounts, the ruler ordered the murder to please someone else. 
and both the soldiers were given the gruesome task to end the life, and in both encounters, the disciples of the victim took the body and buried it, and resurrection was the conclusion of some. I mean, there's some amazing tie-ins between the death of John the Baptist and the death of Jesus, but in answer to the very question that was asked at the beginning of the service, what's the difference? And the difference is Jesus Christ came to this world, and he's on a mission. And his mission is to save his people from their sins and to die vicariously. That means on your behalf, voluntarily. My wife and I just watched a a cheesy movie this weekend. And maybe some of you have seen this cheesy movie called Two Hearts on Netflix. It's trending. I don't know why. But anyway, it's trending. But just from the title, Two Hearts, you can kind of, it doesn't take you long when you've got two stories and the one is in, gets an organ donor card early on when he gets his driver's license. I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is pretty obvious what's going on here, right? So, but it's a tearjerker because this poor 19, it's a spoiler, but don't worry. You will have figured it out five minutes in. But this 19-year-old guy dies And all of his organs are given to save all these other lives. And you're moved to tears because this guy's lungs go into this other guy's life. And now he lives till he's 76 years old, lives a full life. And this guy gave, but as you think about it, did the 19-year-old know this guy? No. Did he intentionally die for this guy? No. Did he do it with the intent of saving this guy? No then why are we so moved to tears by it? It it pales in comparison to what we're celebrating here is that Jesus actually had you on his heart and on his mind. He says that reproaches have broken my heart. The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. What I didn't steal, I must now repay. I didn't climb the tree. He didn't steal from the tree, but he climbed the tree and paid for our sins who ate of the forbidden fruit, which we all have. And it's very personal. He loved me, Paul says, and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. He died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, or on behalf of the unrighteous to save us from our sin and to save us from this hellishness that's in each one of us. There's a little Herodias in every one of us that wants to nurse a grudge this morning. There's a little Herod in each of us that doesn't want to deal with it, that wants to hold on to both and just live in this world of, I don't want to deal with it and just be people pleasers. And the gospel calls us to die to both. So will us do that as we come to the table? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, lover of our souls, now as we come and meet with you, we pray that, Lord, our repentance would be real, that we would turn from ourself, from our sin, from grudges, from anger, from bitterness, lust, pride, sloth, gluttony, the whole gamut. Lord, we lay it down. We thank you that you died for these very sins. We thank you that you were raised for our newness of life. Help us to walk in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.